You're watching The Sports Objective, the podcast for pirates. You're listening to Absolute Empowerment with Coach Jeff Connors on The Sports Objective. Join Coach C, the USA Strength and Conditioning Hall of Famer, every Monday night to see in a variety of guests, including former players, former and current coaches, pastors, and others will discuss relevant issues in coaching today's athlete. The goal of equipping the athlete and those coaching them with the physical, mental, and spiritual armor necessary to live their best life. Here's Coach Connors. Welcome to Absolute Empowerment, coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, tonight, we have a very special guest, Coach Steve Watterson. Uh, Coach Watterson was the uh, longest strength and conditioning uh coach in the NFL. <clears throat> so he stayed with one franchise for 32 years, and that was the Houston Oilers and Tennessee Titans. Uh, Steve was with the Philadelphia Eagles initially. Uh, he came to the uh, Houston Oilers in 1986 to 1990 with Jerry Glanville. Uh, then Jack Pardee from 1990 to 94. And Jeff Fisher from 1994 to 2010. And then Mike Munchak from 2011 to 2013. And Coach, I hope that's all correct, but we are certainly glad to have you on the show. Yep. I also work with Coach Wizenhunt, who took over after Munchak, and then Coach Malaki. Okay. Good, good men. And then uh, ended my – I run when uh, Coach Vrabel took over. I just knew it was time to retire. Just uh, right. couldn't do the body wasn't uh, – couldn't do it. And and the total number of years with that franchise was thirty two or thirty five or well thirty two with uh, it started in my thirty three with uh, the Oilers slash Titans and uh, but actually started uh, eighty four and eighty five with the Eagles and then I started my internship with them uh, Eagles back in seventy eight so I'm aging myself right. <laughs> Well, you know, I want to say that uh, Coach was one of my mentors, and I really believe that uh, there's no one smarter uh, than Steve Watterson in relationship yeah. to strength and conditioning, and I certainly learned a lot from him, and he helped me in my career, and I'm just uh, really happy to be able to have him on the show. And <clears throat> as we've done with many other guests on the show, we want to have highly accomplished people on here uh, to Tell a little bit about their story and also any testimony throughout their lives, uh, things that they've had, they've overcome through faith. And I think probably anybody who's been in coaching has got a few th of those types of things to talk about. Uh, so tonight we want to talk about the Steve Watterson story and talk about a little bit uh, first uh, about the young Steve Watterson before he ended up uh, somehow with the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, starting his career there. So, uh, Coach, let's talk a little bit about that. <clears throat> well, uh, I guess if I had to give a theme to my story. It would be uh, adapt or die. Or if, uh, if you don't adapt, uh, you may be left high and dry because uh, I certainly didn't ever expect to be sitting here with you uh, talking about my career in the NFL or in strength and conditioning. Uh, I started out Newport, Rhode Island, right on the ocean. And my whole goal in life 
all the way till my junior year in college was to be the next Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> I planned on being in the ocean, studying the ecosystems, uh, taking a look at interactions between uh, different animal families. And it wasn't until my junior year that uh, things went a little bit awry because I found out that with uh, an incorrectable uh, blind in one eye, uh, that I would basically be a land-based researcher. And uh, I started looking for an alternative career. And I was yeah. blessed because I was really intrigued on athletic training, sports medicine, how you handle athletes. Uh, I was an athlete uh, through high school and, and college, but I wasn't a very good athlete. But I was always interested in how the body worked. I guess it goes back to my love for the sciences. And uh, so to think that I'm sitting here today and looking back, uh, at a career that had to do in a sport that I never played. I never played football. And yet my whole career was working and training athletes to be the best they could be. Right. Now <clears throat> you became uh certified as an ATC, correct? At some point, I did. Ath athletic trainer. And, uh, when was that and how did that occur? Well, as I said, in junior year in college, I, I went uh, went down to talk to people at the athletic training room at the University of Rhode Island, met a great man named Tom Dolan. Uh, he loved my passion. Uh, I kind of came at things probably a little different from the high science point of view. And so uh, I'm thankful they didn't find my questions tiresome, but I would question methodology. Why do you do this? Why is this? How does the body work? This is what I know about cells in the body. And so um, that, that summer, I was very fortunate. He put my name in uh, for an internship with Philadelphia Eagles because he himself had been worked as an assistant athletic trainer with the, the uh, St. Louis Cardinals way mm -hmm. back then. And I was able to get an internship and worked with a great staff. And one of my mentors, Ronnie O'Neill, Still to the, this day, we talk and talk professionally about what goes on in the profession. And he took me under his wing and really showed me how to look at things from a distance. You know, one of the great things that he taught me, one of the greatest things is, Steve, no matter how hard you work, don't think that you'll heal anything. God heals. It's our job to put it in the best position to heal, whether it be immobilizing, whether it be using modalities with heat or ice or electric modalities, those things put it in the right environment. But the actual healing of tissue, that's that's God's. Mm. So uh, in relationship to what you learned with regard to that educational experience and becoming an athletic trainer, uh, how did you feel like that information gave you, let's say, somewhat of a foundation for strength and conditioning and uh, performance training prescription? Uh, what was the advantage there you think you may have gained? Well, let's go back to the histrionics a little bit about the profession. You know, when I came in uh, to the NFL, a lot of the strength coaches 
were still kind of coaches in waiting, wannabe coaches. They were coaching another, they wanted to coach a position and there wasn't, there wasn't a position <clears throat> available. So sometimes the a coach would say, okay, uh, I'm going to have you run the weight room until a position opens up for you. Um, there were some really great, impactful, uh, they influenced me, strength coaches when I did come in, like say a Bob Ward, yeah. I mean, Virgil Knight. I mean, there right. was some really uh, uh, good strength coaches, but for the most part, they came out of the field of uh, physical education uh, or, like I mentioned, in coaching. Uh, the men I mentioned were more of kinesiologists yeah. in biomechanics. I was an exercise <clears throat> physiologist. And so when I came in, I came from a, a vantage point of how the body works, how cell works, how healing works. And so I think a lot of my background in athletic training really, really did help me and set the uh, platform, uh, allowing me to really learn from a lot of great people. Do you remember right. Tim Jorgensen? Yes. Tim Jorgensen, strength coach, LSU, uh, incredible <clears throat> man, really helped me understand the applications and understand how to build periodicity programs that worked in cycles and learning from him helped catapult me to wanting to work in the profession. And so a coach that I had worked with, and this is the great thing about, hopefully you'll, you'll hear today, is it's so much about relationships. I worked for the Eagles, and I worked and I helped uh, Ron O'Neill, I mean, sorry, uh, Ron Jaworski get back on the field after he had that uh, terrible ankle fracture. They never thought he'd play again. And because of my work with him, the wide receiver coach named Milt Jackson, Mm-hmm who I got to work with with a couple years left yeah. to go to the Houston Oils. And when Jerry Glanville took over the job at the Houston Oils, Milt says, Hey, I got the guy for you, Jerry, because you, Jerry wanted someone that not, that not just did strength conditioning, but it would also get guys back on the field faster. He was very concerned with the rehab process as well. Right. He believed healthy athletes, your best athletes that are healthy help you win the most games. And so he reached out and that began my career in strength and conditioning uh, with the oils back in 1986. Mm. It was, uh, I'm now, not, go uh, just going back to the Eagles, I just want to mention, you know, I was very fortunate that uh, uh, coach John Bunning hired me uh, at UNC Chapel Hill. And uh, I love coach Bunning. And of course, uh, I think he was playing with the Eagles when you were there. So, uh, just want to mention Coach Bunning and see if you maybe had a story or two about oh. uh, about Coach Bunning. JB, if you're watching this, I'm going to tell stories about you cramping <laughs> up at training camp. Oh my gosh, I'm telling you, uh, that linebacker court that John Bunning played with. I mean, you think about Frank Lamaster. Oh yeah, Bill Berge. Bill Berge. Oh my gosh, right. Yeah. I mean, these guys were men. And yeah. so uh, uh, JB was one of the stalwart players on that Eagles team. And uh, I still remember at training camp, him coming in and just flying through the the qualifying test, the fitness test, which were the uh, 
the 16 120s. Okay. And you had to do it with the pulse recovery. And I'm talking about he worked. What year was that? This would have been 1978. (laughs) Okay. Sorry, I'm if I'm aging you, JB. Yeah. And uh, all I remember was, uh, I believe it was the next day or the day after, really, really hot day. And I think we're at Widener University. And uh, JB wouldn't come out. A couple of guys were injured and he was practicing. And I've never seen someone cramp up to such a degree that we could not break the spasm in his Mm. forearms or his biceps. We actually had to carry him in, submerge him in ice water, inject him to have muscle relaxes because he was in such rigidity. I mean, it was incredible pain that he was in. Yet, as a JB fashion, you knew he was there the next day. Oh, yeah. He didn't take any time off. But uh, that, that was a different era. For the yes. for the athletes, that's when it was truly about as much about toughness as it was about athletic ability. JB just happened to have both, right? Well, I was just so fortunate because uh, I was also able to meet a few of his teammates who had come to a few of our games, and uh, the guy that I remember the most was Luigi Amona, <laughs> and uh, I think Luigi lives in Key West now, but uh, definitely one of the most enthusiastic. Uh, intense individuals I've ever met who seem to like to have a good time uh, as well. So uh, uh, you, I'm sure you remember Louis G. I do. I had a very brief uh, interaction with Louis because uh, obviously I, I, when they went to the Super Bowl, uh, I was asked to come back and work. I was still in school. Uh, I was working on my master's degree at that time. And so I was invited back. And for some reasons, a few of the guys had pointed me out because I used to uh, sing at training camp <laughs> and, <laughs> and JP would like to get me up on the table uh, as well as a few of the other guys to nice. Ron Jaworski would have me uh, uh, serenade <laughs> at dinner at training camp. And so I had not met Louis up to that point, but I remember uh, a few of the guys saying, uh, this is the guy we were telling you about that would say. <laughs> and so I'm sitting at, I'm all nervous because I'm a college student and I'm sitting there at the dining room table and I'm sitting there with a Marion Campbell and Dick Vermeil and uh, uh, Les Styles and uh, Dick Corey and the head athletic trainer and the assistant trainer, Ron O'Neill, who ultimately was one of my biggest mentors, taught me so much. I wouldn't be here today without him, uh, but I'm sitting there at dinner. And all of a sudden, I feel something hit me in the head like a rock. And I am trying to keep my composure. And I'm reaching up into my side of my ear. And I pull out a pimento. And it was Louie had hit me in the head with an olive at dinner. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my interaction. Why does that not surprise me? Oh, my gosh. The other unknown, often overlooked fact is... Did you know Louie was Dick Vermeil's nephew? I did know that. <laughs> Coach Bunning let us know that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, he never let that affect the relationships because he was as tough for Dick to handle as probably any athlete. I believe it. Uh, 
with, with Coach Vermeil coming in there, you know, what do you remember about, uh, you know, what did he do to change things or uh, what were some of his stronger points that you think made him so successful? Well, you know, I came in, let's see, 78. <laughs> so that was the year of uh, anybody who's a movie buff, uh, movie Invincible. That was the, uh, the year that I came to work as an intern. Now, Dick had been there, obviously, for a couple of years. Um, what I can tell you about Dick is something I learned from my parents, but I saw in Dick. You were not going to outwork him. Right. Uh, as an intern, we had a little cubby hole where we would stay, sleeping right in that stadium. Uh, little side room, and we would hear, no matter what time in the morning we had to get up, it, usually about 5.30 to stop preparing for camp. And then didn't get done till 11.30 because bed check started at 11. By the time you were done, it was 11.30. And yet we'd still hear 2, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. Film. Okay. The old, yeah. the old the, film. The old 12 million, the 12 yeah. millimeter film. Yeah. And Dick would be, because he didn't, he believed that he was not going to be outworked. He was yeah. not going to let anything slide under the table that he missed. And that started with training camp practices. He wanted to know everything about everybody's ability and what they did and anything they possibly missed or something that he had to adjust. Work was never going to be the reason that something was missed. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Which goes into actually something that, as I said, I got to see in Dick, but I had learned that lesson uh, about work ethic from my dad. Uh, you know, my family, uh, I have four brothers and, and sisters, uh, mm -hmm. nurses. One was, my brother was a Marine, a very successful teacher. Uh, highly respected in their fields and uh my old man only went through high school mm. my mother was a very accomplished teacher and highly educated but i can remember being in family discussions and my dad sitting back and uh you couldn't outwork my dad he was one of the to this day hottest working man i've mm. ever known and i can remember my dad Telling me one time when I came back and thinking I was feeling pretty good about my grades or my status, graduating and my class ranking. And I can remember my dad looking at me and saying, son, better be prepared for this. Yeah. There's always going to be somebody smarter. Right. And there's always going to be somebody tougher. There's always going to be somebody faster. But it's your choice to let somebody outwork you. Right. Never <laughs> let that be the reason for failure. Now. Who was it that uh, influenced you the most with regard to your spiritual life? Well, there's been several people along the way. Uh, I've been very blessed. My family, the basis from my parents, uh, always, every one of the children, we all realized that Jesus Christ was our Lord, Lord and Savior. That was never a question. That's not something that we had to acquire. Uh, unfortunately, personality-wise and uh, being a young, rambunctious young man, uh, it took me a while sometimes to realize the value of what I was being taught. Yeah. And so even going to the Eagles, getting involved with the team, learning professionally from Ron O'Neill, 
he was also a very good spiritual mentor, uh, talking to me about the important things of life. Uh, as I mentioned, Ron taught me that we don't heal, even in the field of sports medicine. We don't heal things. Right. God heals. We put things in the best position to heal, whether we immobilize or use ice or heat or a modality. We use medication. But that's not what heals. Right. That puts tissue in the best position to heal, but it's God's healing and God's time. Mm -hmm. And that was a really important message because too many, too many times I think we think that we're God. We play God and that yeah. we're responsible for certain things. No, we're responsible to put the body and help athletes get into the best possible position so they can optimize what yeah. they've been, the gifts they've been given. Right. So that would be another mentor. Um, another great mentor was a coach on our staff, Sherman Smith, great running back that played for the uh, 49ers. And at Bible studies, uh, staff studies, uh, his ability to make scripture practical in our lives. Uh, I remember one of his favorite scriptures, which was over my weight room door, since he taught me the value of iron sharpens iron. Yes, sir. You know, <clears throat> Proverbs is very clear that what how one man hones another man's abilities, even in their walk with Jesus Christ. No question. And so I'm very appreciative to, to Sherem Smith. Um, and what's crazy is you talk about the evolution of relationships. Uh, two of the places, two of the players, I'm still very, very close to, uh, to the point that we communicate every day. Mm. Not some days, every day we move from verse to verse through the Bible. And mm. that's uh, two Hall of Famers, uh, Mike Munchak, uh, who became the head coach wow. uh, for the Titans. And Bruce Matthews, mm. probably the greatest offensive <laughs> yeah. lineman ever. He could play yeah. any position. Yeah. Um, uh, That's awesome. Bruce's, Bruce has gone from being uh, kind of a cynical, more sometimes an introvert, uh, to his passion with mm -hmm. his walk with the Lord, that he's actually one that leads our Bible study. Mm. We share scripture every day and then every monday we get together for a zoom call and have an hour study just going everything that we've been sharing with or uh, actually going over a text yeah a book and so i really do think that men need to reach out and search out peers no someone doubt. they admire someone that is knowledge and that they can challenge each other and hold each other accountable. You know, the term is an accountability partner. I think it is essential. And as far as the profession is concerned, I got to tell you, there's a, there's a guy that we have, he, I consider him my brother. Uh, we coached across the field for a lot of years. Uh, it's been over 25 years. He was on the other side of the, uh, the field. Jerry Palmari, yeah, an incredible human being, an incredibly knowledgeable and faithful man who writes scriptures <clears throat> and, and uh, devotions and sends them out to a whole group of men 
uh, every day. And Jerry, who coached Super Bowl teams, he was in New York. Obviously, he was with uh, New Orleans Saints for a short period as assistant, mm -hmm. Jacksonville Jaguars. But he has mm -hmm. touched so many lives with how he's coached, just not what he knows uh, and being a really great strength coach. Yeah. But as being a stalwart, strong Christian man and really being a fine example of how a, a man is supposed to live today. Well, I visited Jerry when he was with the Jaguars and he was, uh, you know, shared everything with us. And we just had a great time with him that day. Of course, I learned some things from Jerry. And uh, I definitely want to have him on the show in the future because, you know, these are the types of things we're trying to do with absolute empowerment. No doubt about it. Uh, I think I told you that uh, I had Kevin Colbert on and uh, Kevin had retired from the Steelers and decided to start lend a hand, which they're having about uh, 30, 40 uh, former Steelers on a Zoom call about once a month. And I know that uh, the one that he had most recently when I talked to him was uh, they talked about wills and trusts. And then he just kind of left it to them to interact with each other, maybe pray for each other or uh, see who might need a hand. And uh, I was just so impressed with that, that I'm, I'm trying to start one myself uh, with uh, some of the former ECU athletes or, or just about anybody else who wants to participate. And I'm calling it locker room for life. We're going to try to get that kicked off uh, actually uh, later this coming week. Um, so, uh, I also wanted to getting back to what we were talking about with regard to education. You know, I was at the uh, national strength and conditioning conference here recently to, uh, you know, kind of get my CEUs and keep my master strength coach, even though I'm retired, I'm trying to, for whatever reason, trying to keep a certification, who knows, but, uh, um, I, when I was there, I had heard that, uh, they are uh, going to require possibly in the future with these certifications that you have, let's say a master's degree in exercise phys, or at least maybe a bachelor's in exercise phys. And of course, with guys that came like me that came through many, many years ago, we didn't have exercise physiology. And uh, I was a phys ed guy also. Um, I, I think I have every certification known to mankind, but, uh, Outside of that, what I wanted to ask you, because I think you're probably the most knowledgeable about this than anybody else, is uh, optimally, uh, what would you like to see in relationship to how strength coaches are educated or even what their practical experiences, uh, let's say, might bring to the table or what practical experiences might be required as well as education? Uh, to optimize the effectiveness of every strength and conditioning coach? Well, there's a lot to be said for uh, <clears throat> internships and yeah. for apprenticeships. Uh, obviously, I went through an apprenticeship program, just being able to get to the Eagles back in right. 78. <clears throat> but I also believe that pure academics, pure knowledge is absolute. You have to have a certain amount of knowledge mixed with experience to really meet the needs of an athlete today. Yeah. So I'm a, I've always been a big supporter that there should be a certification, even though I never went through that 
college strength coaches certification program because I was always in the pros. Right. But I do believe that accountability and uh, staff should be held accountable for certain expectations and knowledge. Yeah. To be able to do what you are hired to do. So yes. Um, but on the other hand, I I do think, I mean, I've learned so much from guys that I've met over the years that got into the profession and didn't have any formal training, even in say exercise physiology. Yeah. Old guys, whether it be someone that was a, a lifter like uh Clyde Emmerich, amazing yeah. technician. Uh, read the stories of uh, Lou Ricky. Uh, right. I mean, these Ricky guys, Rack. Ricky Rack, take a look at some of the guys that have done it from mm -hmm. a practical point of view. But I do believe the profession has progressed to the point that to have an expectation of a certification, uh, maintaining CEUs, yeah. uh, this is the iron shop and irons in the practical world right that you really do have to challenge each other to be the best for the athletes as a matter of fact when i when i finally retired uh in 18 <clears throat> i actually went to the owner and said i knew it was time to leave and i reiterated a statement i told the media in 1993 when i was doing an interview and they said how long do you want to still do this and i said I would like to do it until <clears throat> the very best that the athletes deserve is more than the very best that I can provide. Gotcha. And so with more knowledge, with more programs being available, just take a look at the uh, technology that's available to the players. Yeah. When you started coaching, did you ever think you would be using Tendo units? I would not have had any idea what a Tendo unit was, but I used them a lot. You did. Yeah. I know. And I've learned yeah. so much from you as far as how to apply them into the program. I mean, when we walked onto the field and when I started in this profession, you had a stopwatch. Right. And I knew a lot of guys that all they used it for was to swing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not knowing that it actually was a way to <clears throat> quantify how fast someone was, how fast they could recover. Yeah. Um, mock the intervals, mock the repetitions. So yes, the profession has, has significantly changed and the science end of it and the data collection is incredible. Right. But you know what? None of that will ever replace the ability to get athletes to work. Right. That's a quality that still has not been able to be really technically honed or measured in any college class. No doubt about it. 100% agree with that. <laughs> and I had a, uh, just for just for the heck of it, I put some of my own questions together. In fact, I even put them on Facebook uh, not too long ago. You know, with regard to this issue, I just had some of my own questions that I might ask just for the heck of it. Like, uh, did you ever play football? Did you play in college? Have you ever run down on a kickoff and blown up a middle wedge? Um, these are all things that I experienced. <clears throat> I was actually a wedge buster. I was number <laughs> two on the kickoff team. Uh, um, 
Uh, I think another one was, uh, do you know what it feels like to have 600 pounds on your back? Uh, have you ever squatted three times your body weight? Uh, have you ever trained like an animal for 12 weeks for a meet? Mm -hmm. um, what else? Have you ever have you ever trained three times a day because you wanted to win so bad you thought extra training was going to help you, which you don't you don't hear that much either now. But uh, oh, how about you train three or four times a day? Yeah, because you wanted to work alongside the guys that you were training. Yeah, there you go. So they saw they saw you training and the effort that that's you right. expected and the demand. That's right. And I don't think that's quite the expectation, uh, maybe as much today as it yeah. was in, in the old days. But, yeah. you know, I'm very cautious to throw out to the young guys, to the young men in the profession, because I really do admire <clears throat> uh, where the profession is developing and where it's going. Uh, I think scientifically, uh, the application of data, uh, the ability to take out and extract things that were we thought were important in the old days. I'm going to give you an example. Uh, honesty is important in our profession. Yeah. And I have to, you have to admit when you did things wrong, do you know the first test I used to give the players when they arrived back for, when they came back for training in March, back in the old days, they ran a mile. Mm -hmm. Now, why would I have an offensive lineman run a mile? But that, that, that was very common. But that was, what was the practice of the time? Right. We're way beyond that. Yeah. On the other hand, I do think that the ability to expect more out of the athletes sometimes has been compromised. I think the athletes want to be pushed. I think they, they push back against some of the testing and some of the protocols. But in reality, they really do want to know where they're at and where right. their standards are. And so the hard work will never, to me, ever take uh, go by the wayside in lieu of science. They're hand in hand. Right. Interesting. Well, I wanted to uh, I wanted to also ask you about some of the people you've worked for. Um, uh, I know you work for Jerry Glanville. And of course, you know, you hear a lot of stories about oh. Jerry Glanville. And and I've known some other people that work for him. So. Uh, uh, can you say a little bit about your experience working for him? I don't know uh, if you can work for a more fun guy, uh, a guy who has passion for the game uh, more than Jerry Glanville. Jerry is 81 going on 21. <laughs> There's still no job that Jerry doesn't think that he should have or get and he will still pursue at his age now. And you talk about someone that showed passion for every aspect of the game. There are still things that I can hear echo into eternity that he used to have as sayings. For example, if something wasn't done right on the field, I can see him going up, not to the player, but up to the coach and saying, are you coaching that or are you just going to let it happen? Because that's not right. And the minute coach started ba 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 trying to get out of it, he'd say, I expect a drill to fix that. 
<laughs> he believed that nothing <clears throat> should not be corrected. Mm. On the other hand, he was an interesting character. He believed that he taught me that uh, I will never lose a child over a tattoo or an earring. <laughs> he told me that there should only be so many lines drawn in the sand. Yeah. And those lines are in concrete. There are boundaries, but some people just need a little bigger backyard than others. <laughs> gotcha. And I'm talking about the amount of fun. He made it so that the unity of the team, he could change the culture of an organization in a heartbeat with just his passion mm. for how he went about coaching. Wow. That's awesome. Now, how about Jack Pardee? Jack Pardee was one of the junction boys. You talk about a dry, stoic Texan. Uh, Jack Pardee was a man of few words, but when he spoke, they were important and you better adhere to him. Uh, he was a great human being. I've been really blessed in that venue. I mean, the guys that I have worked for have been such good people. But uh, Jack Pardee was as solid as a as a man, both as a player uh, and a coach, as you could work for. I still remember Merlin Olson coming <clears throat> to practice and then talking to a couple of us coaches on the side side uh, sideline one day, and he was talking about Deacon Jones, and this is about the Redskins. And Merlin told us about Jack Pardee <laughs> telling Merlin Jones. <laughs> Merlin had a broken hand. He came out of the game and Jack came out of the game uh, when the offense went on. And he goes, what are you doing, Deacon? He goes, I broke my hand. He goes, I don't care. <laughs> you get back in that game. He goes, even if you can't do anything, just you being out there means they're not going to run to that side. You find a way to get back on that field. Jack, like I say, lived out that junction boy uh, reputation. He was hard nosed. He was old school. He loved his guys. His one failure was he thought the young players that he was coaching loved the game with the passion that he loved it with when he yeah. played. Mm. Interesting. I've known a few, <clears throat> I've known a few like that. <clears throat> uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, Jeff Fisher. Um, and I thought it was just uh, – Pretty incredible, but not surprising to me that with him, you were named uh, the associate head coach. Yeah. He made me the assistant head coach. I think some of it had to do with the responsibilities of, of that went beyond just the strength yeah. and conditioning position. Yet, I would say that on most teams, the things that I was fortunate to have that title uh, really is what most strength and conditioning coaches do on every team. Mm. Uh, I know what you had to do with your team. You held the players accountable. You tried to make sure that they were ready on every facet and aspect of the preparation other than <clears throat> say the X's and O's. But having the mental aptitude to changing the mental attitude yeah. to helping the players realize what was going to be expected of them falls on almost every strength coach yeah. of, a, of the programs that are worth a lick. And so 
yeah, I was very fortunate. Uh, you know, it did lock me in. It made it, uh, and I, like I say, I was very fortunate, very blessed to work with great men. Jeff obviously was a, not only a good man to work for, you know, he was personally a very good friend. Right. Uh, well, I think it's, uh, I felt like I had a, a relationship like that with, uh, with Steve Logan, for instance, you know, for 10 years I was with him and, uh, you know, you go through some great times, you go through some tough times. And, you know, I was, uh, I don't know what I would have done for Steve. Probably, probably would have stepped in front of him, you know, and take a, <laughs> yeah, on a street somewhere if I saw he was going to get hit by a car or something. But that's how strongly I felt about him and felt about the program. And, uh, you know, he did a lot for me. And, um, when we talk about accountability and we talk about uh, all those things that you're willing to fight for, you know, because you know, they're so important. Uh, you know, my four things were accountability, work ethic, discipline, and spirit. And I believe that if you had those four things, you were going to be successful in anything you do in life. And that's why I never wanted to compromise any of those. So if you're 30 seconds late, you got to pay the price because you got to be accountable. There were times when people, if somebody didn't show up for a lift, we'd go to the dorm and go get them, you know, hey, we're, we're coming to your house and get you, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, we expected people to be enthusiastic. We I expected to be enthusiastic myself, you know, when I stepped in the door as a coach, because everybody's going to pretty much work off of, you know, whatever my attitude is for the, for that day. But those four things, I'm never going to compromise them. I'll take them to the grave with me. And, uh, um, you know, I survived seven head coaches, um, which was an act of God itself. But at the same time, uh, I really think the fact that I wouldn't compromise those things helped me. Uh, but then the times when I felt like I, I had to compromise one or two of those in some respect to keep a job, for instance, uh, those were miserable times. Mm. And, you know, you don't want to have to do that. So, uh, I guess just a few thoughts of my own on that topic. No, and right <laughs> along with that, you know, Jeff epitomized the expression and for any coaches out there watching and listening, I think this is really an important adage uh, that people won't care about how much you know <clears throat> until they know how much you care. Yeah. And Jeff epitomized that expression. I mean, there's not a player that played for Jeff that didn't know how much he wanted the best for them. Mm -hmm. I mean, even players that maybe their time had run out with the team or that player didn't fit maybe in our scheme. In leaving <clears throat> the team, Jeff would always lift the player up and try to make them realize, well, you know, it didn't work out here. Hopefully it'll work out with someone else. Always uh, expressed appreciation for the effort given. Uh, I, so much of it probably had to do with you know, him being an ex-player, a very successful yeah. player with Chicago Bears. Um, but he, the players knew that Jeff really kid. And I'm, like I said, I'm so fortunate for the coaches that I've worked with. Uh, I mean, going back to starting with Dick Vermeil, yeah. there's nobody that played for him that didn't appreciate how much he loved them. Uh, and I'll go all the way up to, you know, with Munchak and Mike Malaki, these Head coaches is a reason why they become head coaches right. for the most part. I'm not saying everyone, 
but for the most part, no doubt, they have the respect, no doubt, of the room. Yeah, and the players know that they have the best interest at heart. Now, let me ask you this: uh, Let's talk a little bit about your methodology, uh, and maybe we can just mention how methodology has changed over the years, the evolution of methodology, and all the influences that we've seen and considered. Uh, as part of our programs, or maybe not considered. And so, uh, just generally speaking, um, strength training. Give me a few things. Well, okay, let's go back to the era that we, and I'm going to say us, grew up in. There was really two factions, right? There was the uh, high intensity, which were the circuit training, the the machine guys. Yep, yep. And I think that's looking back, I don't think that's really fair uh, because their programs really did embody more. And there were the weightlifters. Yep. I'm going to go to either powerlifting or, or, or Olympic lifting. Olympic lifting. I came yeah. out of the powerlifting uh, family. Yeah. So I believe it bought something from ground, from all the way from the ground. Mm-hmm. To your nose, there had to be something in your hand, something that was moving. Um, I also believe that your ability to adapt and to change and to uh, take a look at what we're meeting the needs of the athletes. As you know, uh, yeah. I kind of pioneered, I would say, or, or my assistant really instigated Jason <clears throat> Novak up at Michigan State, but um, I really fostered bringing back vintage training. Yeah. I hated the term that I was or the kettlebell guy, but yeah. I used a lot of vintage tools, whether it be uh, ropes, suspension, uh, whether it be clubs, uh, a mace, whether, but a lot of kettlebell activities. Right. Because I felt it needed, it, it, it met the needs of the athletes that had to do, bring all of the explosive training into a more functional application which carried out onto the field yeah so uh as far as methodology i'm gonna have to quote or give you my nickname uh, given to me by the very highly esteemed burt hill coach burt hill for yes, the sir. Both, of, both of us <laughs> yes sir uh <clears throat> burt used to call me dr volume <laughs> he goes, God bless it, son. He goes, I don't know how you can do that many sets of that many reps in a workout. And uh, I did learn, I will be honest with you, that I had to modify the amount of, uh, of volume in a workout and learning that uh, from everybody from Westside Barbell to uh, a lot of the Bulgarian and, and Russian styles of training that uh, volume wasn't always an athlete's best friend. And I did modify, right. but I would say if there was... A, a, a fault in my program is that uh, I would get uh, the overtraining of the athletes, sometimes uh, trying to get more work in yes, instead of just getting the best quality work. Been, been there myself. <laughs> and I do want to mention the fact that uh, I first learned kettlebells in your garage with you and your wife. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, and it was a beating that I took that day trying to catch my breath for an hour. Uh 
Well, it's yeah, funny because a I metabolic still, experience. <laughs> yes, I still remember having a, a a lot of the guys that I respect so much. The guys that get to wear the the green jackets. Uh, I mean, the Masters. If you wear a Masters jacket, you've achieved something, right. and it's something you've earned and and deserved. I remember having so many of the guys come in after that conference in Nashville, and, and so many guys came in and watched us train. Um, yeah, and they all thought it was intriguing, but they didn't really see how it was going to fit and what the real benefits were going to be. And then you came up, yeah. visited me a couple of weeks later, and said, "You know, I really liked it. I, I'd like to know more about it, but I just mm -hmm. don't see what the benefits were." Right. And then uh, I remember coming, coming. You spent some time with us at the weight room. You came yeah. and saw the players doing it, and you found spent some time with Anthony. Yep, and then you. Mm -hmm stepped out in my garage with us yeah <laughs> i think the next day you ordered about thirty thousand dollars worth of kettlebells <laughs> yeah we basically uh we got about 30 pair of kettlebells of carolina <laughs> shortly after that and uh then we had them delivered yeah at the Opryland hotel for yeah, you yeah and then when we when were in the music city bowl i called you and said hey can you can you lend me some kettlebells to put in the hotel rooms up here and <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the rooms that they gave us to train and, uh, those guys didn't forget those workouts that week either, because, you know, we were, we were trying to get ready for that bowl game Yep. and we ended up winning the game, but it was a, it was extremely close game. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm still a kettlebell guy, uh, for myself and anybody else that I train, I still love barbells. Oh yeah. I still love, you know, pretty much all the different tools that we've used over the years, but uh, it's just a tool. Yeah. Yep. But it is a great tool. And the other thing too was, you know, I was involved with wrestlers a lot. That uh, was earlier in my career, but I was also a high school wrestling coach. But when I was at Carolina, I also trained a wrestling team for a couple of years. And so uh, it was very effective yeah. training for those wrestlers as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's just mention speed development. Uh, which is something that, uh, you know, you didn't hear much about. I first was introduced to it when I went down to the Eagles and spent time with Ronnie Jones. And he brought in Kevin McNair from out in California to work with the Eagles. And, uh, of course, that's when Buddy was there. And um, not too long after that, actually, all those guys got fired. Uh, but I did have a chance to watch Kevin McNair work, and I – I brought him into East Carolina later and Kevin was one of the first people who I uh, basically saw coach force application into the ground, uh, the importance of hip posture, the importance of arm stroke, uh, just the overall importance of body position. And, uh, but he really kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things uh, in relationship to strength that you need to apply force into the ground to propel your hips through the air to give you stride length. Well, any of this, yeah, you're asking me and my opinion. I can tell you the histrionics of my relationship with field training, speed training, yeah, and conditioning, because I, they all have an evolution. They're all connected. Um, but I got to say, I would defer to you because so much um, I was very blessed to be able to hear and try to apply uh, some of the programs that mm -hmm. Lawrence Seagraves 
right. who had applied. I was fortunate to actually have Tom Telez in my backyard come yeah. over and work with the players and more watch what he was doing with sure. my players um, because that wasn't my strongest suit. Um, but I will tell you some of the best knowledge, some of the best information. I can go to Charlie Francis. I can do the things that I've read and taken a look at. But really, Jeff, this is not because we're here. I've got to defer to you that what you shared with me and uh, your manual was so valuable mm. to how I altered what I had been doing in the past as far as training athletes for speed. Because training, training for conditioning is not training for speed. Yeah, uh, no doubt. Conditioning no doubt. is a byproduct. Yeah. It's the actual quality of speed is in itself a fitness component that needs to be trained, right. developed, and improved. And let me give you an example. Uh, and I think it was 2003, we coached um, in the Pro Bowl. And I'm working with uh, the entire team. I don't know a lot of these athletes very well because they come from every team right right and i remember players going through my warm-up and i still remember a, a player for the chicago chicago bears named reuben brown and uh i'm so thankful that i got to meet reuben a couple of days earlier i had my kids he had his kids we met in the pool we're talking and so at least i had a relationship with him because he came up to me after the first practice and said coach I love you. You're a nice guy. You make me sweat more in my in my warm-up than I normally do in practice <laughs> in Chicago. That's one extreme. Yeah. Now I'm gonna go to another one. Jerry Rice. I watch as I taught the players how we went through our pre-practice warm-up, our muscle activation. Right. A lot of guys call it stretching. It's not stretching, it's preparing the body for the day's practice. Right. And so a lot of ours are very functional and very active. And Jerry Rice is, he's eyeballing me as I'm doing the activities and showing the athletes what I want them to do for their pre-activation. Very attentive. And yet the next day, I notice he's really not doing some of the things that we had, we were doing for the pre-activation. So I went up to him. Towards the end of practice, I said, Jerry, I have so much respect for you um, as an athlete and what you've been able to accomplish. I just have a question. Yesterday, you were so attentive to everything I was doing, but today I did notice you didn't do some of the activities. Did you think they were not beneficial? I want to know. Right. And he said, Coach, I love what you showed me. He goes, I'm going to add some of those into my routine. He goes, but the way coach fisher runs his practices you do the warm-up after he's already done his special teams walkthrough yeah got you me personally mm -hmm. i want to be 100 percent warmed mm -hmm. up before the walkthrough <laughs> okay he goes i've already <clears throat> this was killing me he goes coach i've already run two miles went down to the hotel gym and did 
all of my warm-up, including some of the things that you taught me yesterday. Wow. He goes, so thank you for improving my program. He goes, but when I hit that field, I want to be 100% ready to run full speed. Right. And you wonder why he's so successful. Incredible. Yep. That's great to hear. Yeah. That's a great story. I'm glad you told me that. Uh, <clears throat> so with regard to speed, you know, we got all these gurus out there now, and I think it's a good thing. And I think that uh, as a profession, we've learned a lot. You know, um, now some people I think are out there more for the financial end of things, possibly. But uh, at the same time, I think the, uh, the profession has really grown with regard to to how to teach speed and um, and put away a lot of the myths. Uh, and I thought there were a lot of, of those out there, particularly uh, some of the ways that some of these athletes were coached during their high school careers. And we'd get them in, you know, at the collegiate level. And of course, one of the main things we had to do was fix them. And a lot of them, a lot of those kids had, had run, ran track in high school as well. But uh, things come a long way. And um, I'm still trying to learn more myself. And I still, uh, I still coach speed. But uh, um, well, I will I tell you this some of your drills, <clears throat> I think some of the things that you shared with me that we, put into our program were some of the most beneficial drills. Um, everything from the hip pops to, uh, to upper, bo upper body running, uh, sitting on the field, uh, to the fence drills that you, you yeah. taught us. Those were so practical uh, that I could use with the whole team. But one of the things that I really found in talking to you about speed was your ability uh, as a diagnostic individual, being able to find someone's an individual's weakness, teaching speed to a large group is one thing, but right. finding yeah. a person's weakness, uh, as you shared, giving me some of the cases that you had taken a look at in the past, yeah. that's the real ability to coach speed. No yeah. doubt. Yeah. I think the more that you can, and what I used to like to do, and this was many, many years ago, this is when we had the Cowboys, you know, where you would freeze frame and go frame by frame. Mm -hmm. So we, I think we were one of the first schools that, that really uh, videoed everyone and just broke it down frame by frame. And then basically got them in there, you know, in the office one-on-one -on -one and were able to have them study themselves. And I think that really helped us uh, quite a bit. And that was actually a long time ago when we started that. So, so yeah, good stuff. Well, for anybody out there is looking for a drill that was maybe a little more unique that we did was teaching a uh, player that's been running for 20 some years and for them to find value on changing a technique sometimes can be difficult because they're like, this is the way I've run my whole career. But teaching them that they're wasting energy, uh, that by altering a technique, It'll make them more effective, be able to control the center of gravity, be more an efficient runner, and ultimately make them faster and less fatigued. Right. That can be a challenge at times. So often what I would do with an athlete that really was wasting energy, often throwing the hands side to side when they were running and not understanding that A to B running, uh, cheek to pocket, uh, becoming more efficient. 
um, when I, I when I would identify an athlete that didn't run well, <clears throat> I would have them run sprints or say, well, if you don't think it's important, then you can't use your arms. Yeah. Uh, actually have them do half gases with the rest of the team, but they had to have their hands behind their back. <laughs> and it would be amazing how fast they would realize how much that made them more efficient. And it said, if that would make you more efficient, amazing right? how much more efficient you would be if you did it really correctly and with the right technique. And that was a, a cute little drill we would. That puts me in mind of, I used to uh, run stadium steps uh, with, I had the athlete sprint stadium steps with a dowel fully extended behind the ears. Really? You know, so you had to use your lower body. You had uh -huh. to think about your lower body. So uh, I thought that was very effective as well. Uh, don't know how much time we got left, but I, what I want to do is I want to kind of, I want to go back here and just talk about, uh, you know, the awards that you had, um, cause I mentioned that in the beginning, but, uh, NFL strength and conditioning lifetime achievement award. So longest you are the, the coach who spent the longest time with one franchise in the NFL. I, I guess of any position. Okay. And any that, position with the same team, consecu right. consecutive years. I think there's a the old line coach at the Patriots <clears throat> may have had as many years or more than I had with the same team, but he left, went to another team. <clears throat> but I guess I have that, that record. None of that means anything other than a reflection of I worked for some really good men. <laughs> I was given a lot of grace. I really was because there were times uh, – very easily, I could have been fired, maybe pushed a guy to it. I remember Jerry Glenville. I had a guy named Ira Valentine. I was so angry with him that he missed one of my workouts. The players knew, especially in my younger days, if they missed a workout the next day, they had to work out with me. Yeah. I may not have always been able to be as strong as some, but I would do more reps and sets than they could even count. And I can remember doing this to this one athlete. And unfortunately, he couldn't play the next day because he was so sore. <laughs> this was two <laughs> days before a game. And I don't know how many coaches would survive that in today's era. So I was very fortunate to work with. And that's the only reason I ever received any. You were also NFL Coach of the Year, correct? Okay. There was none of these Strength things. Coach yeah, of the Year, right? Yeah. But again, none of those things matter. You know yeah. this. And this is for anybody watching it. It is a reflection of who you get to, the athletes I got to train. And the coaches I got to work for, uh, those are the only reasons I got those recognitions. Right. Yeah. Well, Coach, uh, you know, we're going to wrap it up here. But uh, I think the last thing and I'd just like you to just say a few words about is just, um, you know, we, we hear all these things about mental health of athletes. We, we know of the athletes that we coached, some of whom went by the wayside for various reasons. And uh, for anything from uh, possibly in being involved in drugs or some other issue. But uh, that is one of the big reasons that I, I started a website and wanted to do this podcast because, you know, those guys that experience those types of, of challenges and hardships, sometimes I feel like, you know, maybe there's a way that we could have saved, could have saved some of them. Uh, I had two, I had two young men that I coached who were shot to death. Um, 
think about those guys a lot. So, uh, you know, just from a spiritual standpoint or what are, you, what are your thoughts there? You know, how, how can we help people? Well, I'm going to, I'll start with this. Uh, too often coaches turn their backs when they see things that they don't think directly affects a player's performance on the field. Right. Not realizing that the player, the person inside is more important than anything they'll ever do for you on the field. Um, and I'll be honest with you, when uh, when Steve McNair uh, died, it really rocked me. Yeah. And the reason is uh, we have all challenges. I'm not judging anybody else's life. But when we see someone struggling, maybe going down the wrong path, I think as a coach, as a true Christian brother, you have an obligation to say something. Right. And from that point on, I even talked to several players, several players I would pull aside and say, I'm not judging anything that you're doing. I'm not judging. That's not my right. Yeah. I just want to let you know that I see what you're doing. Right. You're not invisible. And what you're doing, I have seen have negative effects on other athletes. And so if you think you're being invisible and getting away with something, I think it's my obligation to let you know. Right. No, you're not invisible. That's one. The second thing is, I think a coach has a responsibility for what we expect out of an athlete. And we do have expect, and that's everything from performance to relationship. Is at the very least, we owe them the love and care that goes beyond just the field. Right. Um, I know when I find out to this day that one of my players uh, who I worked with is struggling personally at home, family, uh, it breaks my heart. And I do, I take the time, I try to reach out, I try to find out what's going on. And if it's not me personally, I may contact a player that I know he had a relationship and ask them to reach out. Um, and as far as that goes, uh, let me give you an example. The only time in my entire NFL career that I ever stopped the entire workout to address a situation was when the NFL themselves put out a video talking about the shield, the NFL shield, and how important it is. And I understand that's important. But they had some Hall of Famer players talking about and almost challenging the other players not to tarnish the shield. It's a reflection on them, and it's a reflection on me, and it's a reflection on the whole organization, and you have an obligation. And I remember going to the weight room afterwards, sitting there, putting the players through the workouts and stopping it and saying, guys, we've missed the mark. Mm. You don't play for that shield. Your identity should be in your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Mm. Your identity should be in your family and friends. It's a career. It is not in a shield. Yeah. And if that's what you're playing for, it's going to be hollow. When you realize that you get to use the very gifts that God has given you, 
it'll be much, much more rewarding because it's a gift you've been given. Awesome. And I think the mental stress that athletes have uh, are identified in this saying. Everybody thinks it's hard to get into the NFL. Jeff, it's a lot harder to leave the NFL. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you're always feeling empty <clears throat> when you either told your career is over, when an injury happens, even in pawn retirement. Right. You feel that had been your identity and your identity should be in, in your Lord and Savior Christ alone. I hear that. That helps me in my retirement. So I appreciate those words. Amen, brother. Well, I uh, really appreciate it. Can't tell you how much uh, this means to me to be able to spend this time with you and how much it means to our program here. So uh, uh, this is Jeff Connors uh, signing off with Steve Watterson uh, for Absolute Empowerment. God bless, and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot. God bless. You've been listening to Absolute Empowerment with Coach Jeff Connors on The Sports Objective. Join us every Monday night for a new edition of the show. Listen to the show pretty much everywhere podcasts are found. Be sure to follow us on social media at The Sports OBJ on Twitter and TikTok, at The Sports Objective on Instagram. Like and follow our Facebook page and subscribe to our YouTube channel. As always, we appreciate you listening to the show. And go Pirates!